Welcome to The Impossible Network, the podcast about everyday people living extraordinary lives. Each week, we explore how their upbringing affected them, how creativity fueled them, and how serendipity guided them. The Iconic Advantage strategy that we created was very, very simple. It's made up of three things. So there's noticing power, that's being different for a meaningful reason. There's staying power, and that's about understanding what it is that is central to your product or, or your brand or whatever you're innovating on, and making sure that you know what cannot change and also what can change, what the opportunities are. So there's some stuff that, that you, you, you can't mess with. And then the third thing is scaling power. And scaling power is about making sure as many eyeballs see it, to make sure that your audience knows it's there, is very visible to them. Dave Burrs describes himself as an author, public speaker, consultant, filmmaker, chap. I know him as one of the most interesting creative thinkers on idea development, innovation, and why organizations and educational institutions must embrace creativity to prepare for our AI-powered future. With an award-winning career as a digital creative director in some of London's top ad agencies behind him, Dave has recently turned his attention to an exploration of the creative mind. Now three books to his name and a methodology called Right Thinking, Dave is applying his creative thinking framework along with tools and resources to help organisations direct their mental and creative effort more effectively. On the show, we have a wide-ranging discussion on all aspects of creativity, innovation and disruption, including the barriers, the processes, the physiology and the neuroscience of idea development. I hope you enjoy the thinking of Dave Burrs. Well, thanks for being on the show, Dave. Great to see you here in New York. It's been a while. <laughs> it's always good to be here. Yes, thank you. Thanks so, for asking me on. Yeah, well, and we just to say we are in <laughs> unusual surroundings. We were supposed to be in the studio Acast, which is actually three floors above us. But we're two floors down at the offices of Courtney Renicky, another uh, guest on the Impossible Network, uh, who's kindly lent us one of her uh, one of her offices. So we've got some interesting sort of mix up of uh, iPhones cushions um, to muffle some <laughs> of, the, sort of the, the sound of the office. But I think we'll get by. So, Dave, you and I. I sort of go back to I think 2007 where we first met in Cannes yeah. at, at the Ad Festival in those yeah. good old days. Indeed. And it's been a while. I think one thing that we certainly share is our view that creativity isn't a domain uh, that's not really reserved for the few, that it's a capacity that's in all of us, albeit it's pretty suppressed, confined, and crushed in many people by either their personal educational or the corporate attitudes and the conventions and norms that we all face. What's your sort of view on creativity at the moment, given you've been really prolific over the last few years as a writer, as a consultant, as uh, in your speaking gigs, talking about creativity and innovation? Mm. You must have interesting perspective on the, the state of the, the word, the term and the concept in itself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been evolving over the last few years because I would have thought when I was creative director of ad agencies, I would have thought that I would have known what creativity was. And now I look back and I think I really didn't have much of a clue at all. Um, I did a study a couple of years ago to see what, uh, what I, other people thought creativity was. So I put up an online survey and it just said, what is creativity? I said, uh, don't Google it, don't consult a dictionary, just type your answer in here. And I got hundreds of responses. It was actually it was amazing how many responses I got. And it was also amazing how there was nothing cohesive. There was nothing that brought them together apart from 
the misunderstandings, the myths that people believed, and you could split it into categories. So some people believed that uh, creativity was a special talent reserved for the few. Mm-hmm. Some people thought it was a process, and that's probably a bit closer to the truth. Um, some people thought it was a load of old nonsense because they probably had to endure terrible brainstorms and all the rest. And it really it showed me that if we've got a fundamental misunderstanding of what creativity is as a culture uh, within our companies, within our nations, then we can't use it properly if we don't understand what it is. And that set me in a path over the last couple of years of actually trying to work out what actually is creativity. And I've tried to simplify it and simplify it and simplify it until I've kind of got to this place that it's not this that's creative and that's not creative. It's not a binary thing. It's a sliding scale. And you measure the sliding scale with obviousness. So if that's obvious, it's not creative. If something's non-obvious, then it's something that we would describe as creative. And it takes work to get to this non-obvious stuff. And that's the one thing that people tend to not know how to do that. And that's what I've been working with organisations with, is actually how do you get to these non-obvious and valuable areas? Isn't that the domain, just to go back to our days in Adland, but isn't that the domain and the skill set of a good creative director is pushing people away from the obvious to the non-obvious? And it's something that they've developed skills in, and that being obviously their primary domain. Yeah, I mean, it's... Very much, uh, having done that for many years, yeah, very much was trying to push people into new territories. But there was also the idea of of value because it's not just about being new and non-obvious, it's about being valuable. And depending on what the problem you're trying to solve, that idea of value can change. Mm -hmm. So it could be that it gives you monetary value, it could be that the value you get is extra attention from people, it could be that the value that you get is... Uh, in, in even just solving a process, coming up with a different way of doing things within a company, that a different way of getting people to fill in spreadsheets, you know, something quite dull. Um, if that is a value, if it, if, it, uh, if it nudges the needle and whatever metric you're measuring it on, then it's something that we'd consider to be valuable. But it's these two things, is both non-obvious and valuable. If we can imagine that there's a sort of quadrant mm-hmm then that's the the quadrant we want to be in. If we've got a matrix there, the quadrant we want to be in is valuable and non-obvious. And wouldn't that um, play into the hands of the innovation consultant and say that's what innovation, really, uh, innovation practices try and do? Yeah, absolutely. But also this idea of creativity, um, what we're finding is that for the people who are doing innovation in companies, the creativity doesn't necessarily have to come from them, particularly, I mean, when innovation very often isn't defined within a company as to what it is which creates problems but for some people it's purely um, digital transformation it's what they see innovation being then very often that's about getting a platform where somebody else has put the creative thinking in and all the hard thinking to be able to get a great platform and then you implement that so sometimes the, 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 the creative thinking doesn't have to be created where you are for it to be valuable to the company and a lot of the time people within the world of innovation have fallen for this myth of disruption Hmm. and this idea of trying to do things different uh, to try and be the next Airbnb of uh, insurance you know and and it's not the way forward it's not the way it works uh, because these big organizations 
are not designed to embrace that kind of thinking for one. And the other thing is when you disrupt, you disrupt everyone in your company, you disrupt all the go-betweens that you have, you, you disrupt um, your suppliers, you disrupt your customers. Now, that means that you're in a very high-risk, high-cost area if you're doing that. And that's not the way to do successful innovation. But wouldn't um, uh, Clayton Christensen, wouldn't yeah. he argue that, that you either have to disrupt or be, be at risk of being disrupted? So it's a choice that individuals are a choice that businesses have, that they have to do something. But I know... I mean, that's a, a question back at you, but also I've just add to that. I did note that you, in your last book, I think it was The Innovation Advantage, where you talk about the importance of the business looking at their, their core business as a way to leverage advantage and competitive mm. differentiation rather than necessarily look for disruption in some sort of new category or to reinvent their business. So maybe you'd like to just yeah. reflect on those two elements. Absolutely. That iconic advantage, the, the, the book. Um, iconic advantage. Yeah. So, yeah. That, that, so I, I co-wrote that with a guy called Sun Yu and he used to be head of innovation for VF Corp, Vanity Fair Corporation. So that was Timberland, Vans, The North Face, Napa Piri, great big brands. And his innovation generated a lot of revenue, which is really unusual for, for innovation to do that. And the approach that we kind of uh, crystallized in the book was about a lot of people with innovation are trying to innovate the new, but actually the successful long-term innovative companies innovate the old. And their innovation efforts are used to grow their brand and cement their brand within their for their target audience. So the idea of being iconic is about being the first brand or the first product your audience thinks of when they think of your category. That's what makes you iconic. So it's not necessarily about trying to be super sexy or incredibly well designed, because you can be iconic as an insurance company. You can be iconic as a plumber. If it's you're the first one that your audience thinks of when they think of your category. But to get back to the disruption thing with Clayton Christensen, and he talked about, I mean, he really was the guy who coined this in about 96. And I think that people have taken his stuff out of context because a disruptive technology is something you can only describe in retrospect and say that that disrupted. You can't say that something you're doing is going to disrupt because you just don't know. Mm -hmm. And when we look at the stuff that we would say is disruptive, when I ask people what they think the most disruptive companies are, they'll say things like Airbnb, they'll say Tesla, they'll say uh, Uber, you know, and it's all Spotify and they come up with all these sort of same kind of things that they say, they're, they've changed industries, they're disruptive. None of them, not one of them, was the first to market for what they did. Does that make them disruptive? They disrupted. But the problem is when companies are trying to go out there um, into a totally new area that doesn't have overlap with what they do very often, there's just... What you're saying to people is you need to unlearn this and you need to relearn this. That's a highly risky strategy. And I think that people have misunderstood the idea of disruption and they're trying to be disruptive in the wrong way because they think it means that you have to do something completely new, completely different. But actually the companies that we describe as disruptive are actually, they're not first to market and, and they, they've just got something that makes them slightly better from what's out there. Could you give an example? You mentioned the VF company, Corporation. Could you give some tangible examples of that at, what, at play and what they did? Um, well, Soon would really be the, the one who uh, would be best to talk about this and maybe yeah, he'd be actually yeah, be a good sure. guest. Yeah. Um, but we can certainly we can talk about uh, 
Well, companies that have sort of um, embraced what you're talking about in that um, in that in the book, I keep yeah. calling it the innovation advantage, the uh, iconic advantage. Iconic advantage. Iconic advantage. Um, the a good example is Nike, I guess. You know, they um, when it came to Nike Air, what happened is there's a guy called M. Frank Rudy. He was a NASA engineer. And he had been working on the Apollo space missions on the helmets. So he created these things that was amazing. It was air pocket technology that kept it light. It gave it uh, rigidity. And uh, it also had thermodynamic properties as well to keep the heat in and all the rest. And when he left NASA, he realized that this technology they created at NASA was was pretty powerful and as somebody who was interested in running he thought well you know if this stuff it means that you're running on air if you're able to put this into the into your footwear because uh training shoes as as somebody does a lot of running you'll know that they they lose um like 40 to 50 percent of their bounce throughout their life yeah so they become less cushioning over the uh the more you use them and they lose it very quickly as well but when you've got an air pocket it never loses bounce so he took it around all the shoe companies. The shoe companies were not interested. And he went to this new startup, really, uh, Nike. Had, they'd been running for a few years, and they'd mainly been importing Onitsuka Tigers mm-hmm. from Japan. And they were thinking about doing their own shoes and starting to look at this. And when he came to them with the technology, you know, they were young. They didn't have that much to lose. And they went, yeah, let's go for it. Now, the first shoe that they put the technology into was the, it was the Tailwind. And the tailwind yeah, was back in I think 1986, 87. I seem to remember. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was about 1980, 1979, 1980, something like that. Now the tailwind didn't sell well yeah. because what happens? You, you know, they say that advertising is the tax you pay in a bad product. They had to advertise the fact that there was air in there because you couldn't see it. Mm. So it didn't sell well because people couldn't see it and then out came the Air Max 1 what was that 84, yeah. 85 something like that no, I, think that, I think maybe? it was 86 because that's when you actually saw the actual sort of pocket yeah. itself and that was a big for me that was a big innovation do you remember yeah. seeing the first that yeah, for the first yeah, I time pick it up and go wow I know and you look through it and you prod it and you sniff it and you're like oh wow squeeze it and, and that it made it look different from every other shoe on the shelf mm. but it also communicated the benefit and what they've done since then is it's all been about what we call visible air. And they have expanded from it being this little area that was maybe smaller than the palm of your hand to now it's the whole shoe. Mm. And my wife's got a pair that just the whole underside that she got a couple of months ago it is just air. And it's incredible that they, they have... People understood air and they have just moved it like if I'm doing things with my hands here, which is very bad for a podcast. <laughs> so if you can imagine that, that you've got a Venn diagram circle, that's people's understanding of what Nike Air is, visible air. And each year they have just moved it slightly. So the circle overlaps. Most of the way it overlaps, it just eases out ever so slightly. And each year they keep overlapping it. And that means that when you do that you can take people on a journey Mm -hmm. but there always has to be more familiarity than unfamiliarity on that journey and you just look at apple devices and that's what they've done so they do just like nike you've got one breakthrough you've got your iphone and again apple weren't the inventors of that they're very good at buying technology and the it really came from um you know the uh pan pilot 
kind of came out of Apple mm-hmm. and then they were interested in this they'd done the Newton well the Newton failure obviously one of the spectacular yeah. failures of um, Jobs yeah. Yeah. and uh, then they bought the, I- the company that did the iPod um, so they then took that and developed it and made it something beautiful and then as that kept developing then they brought to put the phone technology in and made the full screen device and, and they I mean they, they cracked it it's fantastic but you compare the first iPhone I've got one in a cupboard at home to what I've got now, it's not a huge difference. I mean, it doesn't look that different. I mean, you've got the iPhone X that doesn't have the button, but for mine, I've still got the button on it. And you can see that it's just evolved gradually over the years, but there's still the same elements that we're familiar with throughout. So how do you, how do you find the, this concept? Is it, how is it embraced when you go into companies and talk about this importance of an iconic advantage? When they're expecting you to come in there and, and guide them on sort of a, uh, how to sort of push their creativity, sort of create innovation, sort of instill disruption in the workforce, and then you tell them actually, let's mm. look at where your where your company is today and and yeah, well, there's a there's a couple of things so there. It's almost like an iterative yeah. innovation rather than a large leap forward or dis- to term disruption. I know you'd yeah <laughs> so disdainful. But we're disrupting the idea of disruption. Yeah. I know it becomes ironic at that point. There's a couple of things. One one's iconic advantage. The companies we're speaking to about it are really liking this as a strategy because a lot of them, when it comes to innovation, they've never really quite defined what they mean by innovation or what innovation involves, which means that when you start up an innovation department and it's not defined, these guys want to do the sexy stuff. So they want to do the stuff that's disruptive. They want to be, be heading down to uh, to Austin every year to do the South by Southwest and, and, and find everything because, you know, that, and, and yes, that is good stuff. But unless you have an understanding of how you're focusing your innovation and what you're planning to get out of it and how you want to use it to grow your business and to grow, develop your product and to make your product um, getting it into the hearts of your consumer in a more robust way. If, if you don't have that as your core, then you're just innovating in different directions doing lots of stuff so it's one of the first things I do when, it, when I'm speaking to companies about innovation is actually sit down with them and go right what is your innovation strategy and I'll tell you that most of the time they say what do you mean they, we've got in, we're doing innovation it's just like no why you're doing innovation what's the remit of innovation what are you hoping to get out of your innovation how are you measuring your innovation if you don't have that stuff in place then you know you're just going off in all sorts of mm-hmm. directions but yeah, um, the iconic advantage strategy that we created was very, very simple. It's made up of three things. So there's noticing power. That's being different for a meaningful reason. There's staying power. And that's about understanding what it is that is central to your product or, or your brand or whatever you're innovating on and making sure that you know what cannot change and also what can change, what the opportunities are. So there's some stuff that, that you, you, you can't mess with and then the third thing is scaling power and scaling power is about making sure as many eyeballs see it to make sure that your audience knows it's there mm-hmm. is very visible to them and you can do that through um, how you Adding, get it good, good old that agency yeah advertising but also distribution so and, just and run that so the staying power scaling power and the first so one noticing power noticing power right yeah okay. noticing power staying power and scaling power and it's all uh, it's all in the book and it's very in fact, I think uh, I think maybe on the website as well. And how has that <laughs> moved on with the new book? Or well, you've taken that in a different direction. Yeah, well, my my new book isn't. Uh, there's parts that 
will nudge into what uh, the iconic advantage strategy was. But this new book is called How to Get to Great Ideas. And it's kind of, again, I would split this into four parts. The first part of the book is getting rid of a lot of the, the myths and bullshit that surrounds creativity and innovation and trying to then explain using science a lot of the time. I use neuroscience, evolutionary psychology, um, you know, social psychology to explain the importance of creativity and what creativity actually is. Uh, the second part uses explains how a process that can solve any problem pretty much. And it's something I've been developing for a few years now and it's called right thinking. And right, R-I-G-H-T stands for research, insight, generate ideas, hone ideas, test ideas. And I've done this for people who want marketing ideas. I've worked with the oil industry on engineering ideas, actually how to, how to cap oil wells. We used it for that. Um, and we've used it for processes as well as products. So I'm finding that this system is working for everything. So I explain it's how that what works. you earlier said, as if creativity is a process. Yeah. More that than a... Yeah, very much. And, and a, a black box. A lot of people from our, our old industry of advertising hate the idea that creativity is a process. Mm -hmm. But it actually is. And if you follow the process properly, that's how you get to the best solutions. Um, so then uh, the third section is about how individuals can have the best ideas. And that's not about hacks and brainstorm techniques. It's actually about habits, um, the fact that you need to feed your brain with, with good information. Mm -hmm. And then the last section is on how organizations can help ideas flourish because most organizations are actually set up to murder ideas and it's to show them how to get around it to encourage ideas from their staff. But isn't that sort of the, the, the principle and sort of the irony of businesses that have got their innovation departments that it says it's the domain, going back to the almost like the creative department, it's the domain of one sort of group of people yeah. when actually you're trying to foster um, a culture of creativity and innovation in any, everyone and to allow them mm. to move forward without fear, with mm. um, to enable risk-taking and all the things that, yeah. that we know are actually so make people feel happier, more fulfilled and, uh, and more driven and more motivated at work. And it might yeah. be as simple as that. Yeah, you. you're absolutely right. I, I think that, that uh, most companies are, are toxic to, <laughs> to ideas and the ghettoization of creativity I think is really harmful. Um, I, I think that it's one of the reasons that the advertising industry isn't as healthy as it was because of the ghettoization of creativity. I, I think that if you manage it properly, then you should be tapping into minds that come at it from different perspectives. Because the when you've got a creative department, they are actually coming at it from the same perspective. Mm. And the mind is just a processor. And I've got to say, I used to get frustrated with my some of my creative departments because I felt they weren't feeding their mind. So with, I mean, we're both tech guys, so understanding the way that programmers would look at stuff, you've got garbage in, garbage out, is mm -hmm. what they say. Yeah. And the brain is just a processor. So if you want to affect your, your output and to get the best creative output, it's not getting a more powerful processor, it's actually having better input. So... The way that you can come up, however powerful you think your brain is, the way that you can come up with ideas that no one else can come up with is by spotting things that no one else has seen. Mm -hmm. Because if you've got different input to everyone else, you can have different output to everyone else. 
But then the thing comes from what you're talking about is the idea of fear. Well, that is a role of leadership, surely, when the companies that you must speak to, because the leaders aren't instilling the the environment and the attitude for their staff to mm. approach things with the way you're describing, then they're not sort of uh, executing the role as a, le- a leader as effectively as they should be. And, and stats are proving that. I mean, last year, McKinsey did a study and it said that it was for CEOs and they asked hundreds of CEOs, how satisfied are you with your innovation efforts? And 6% of the CEOs said they were satisfied with their innovation. That is horrendous. 94% of CEOs do not say they're satisfied with their innovation efforts. Something has gone wrong. And I believe it's that most companies don't understand how to get ideas, how to nurture ideas, and how to take them through to execution. And they may be getting the ideas from their innovation people, but they're not getting out there, they're not making it intact to the end of the process, um, because very often the process is interminable with so many uh, meetings they have to have, so many people having their input, that if you manage that wrong, you know, the, the idea gets damaged and dies on the way. So there's lots of little things like that I'm very interested in. How do companies get better ideas and actually make them happen? Maybe the issue is that although today every business has to become a a technology company in some some description, I can remember I was talking to someone in the last week uh, just describing how every company they encounter are looking at how they're taking themselves and applying artificial intelligence, machine learning, etc., etc., to help them transform and going through this digital transformation but the reality is they're maybe taking their eye away from the sort of the softer side of creativity they're holding them back from either taking the chances mm-hmm. the risks that they need to take to help give them that differentiation and that competitive advantage over their over their over their competitors and maybe it's just an inherent sort of fear of failure that's that exists there uh, is this something that you're sort of encountering with some of the conversations you have on your consulting yeah, yeah. I, I was I was doing a talk to a conference of the world's mayors a few months ago. It was a peculiar audience to have, and I was explaining to them how every organisation is a hierarchy, and each layer of a hierarchy is a layer of fear. So people are second guessing the people above them because they don't want to look stupid if they're going to present an idea on oh no, it doesn't work because of this. So they make the idea smaller each layer of fear and they act like lawyers and this is nothing against lawyers but how does a lawyer measure their value you know if you give a lawyer a contract and the lawyer just looks at the contract goes yeah it looks all right go for it you're going to feel as if you've not got the value out the lawyer the lawyer shows their value by going i think there's a problem here we need to insert a clause i think we need to reword this you know they're going to spot problems that's a lawyer's job And every single layer of management in a hierarchy acts like lawyers. And they shouldn't. It's not what they should be doing. Because lawyers are focused on spotting problems, but the people who are great at encouraging ideas spot opportunities. Opportunities are the opposite of problems. (laughs) And in organizations, you cannot expect an idea to travel through those layers of hierarchy to the decision maker at the top and remain intact and as powerful as they can be. Yet that's what most companies do. They believe that's the way it works. So I I show companies how there's different ways of doing that. And one of the best companies at this who've been doing this since the 1950s is Toyota. So what happens is that anyone 
wherever you are, if you're a, a sweeper in the factory, you can give your ideas. And in fact, it's in your contract. You're expected to come up with ideas to keep improving the company. It's in your contract. And anyone can come up with the idea and they put their, submit their idea into a suggestion box. And then their peers look at that idea. So every now and then they'll get the ideas out and they'll look at them and go, yep, yeah, that's great. Mm, something in that, but maybe you need to develop it. That's terrible. That's great. And the best ideas are then passed from that peer group of uh, sweepers in the factory straight up to the decision makers. Does not pass through any of the layers. Goes straight to the decision makers at the top and they go, yes or no. Now, they avoid the hierarchy. They've known this for nearly 70 years and they get uh, 20 ideas per individual per year. Now, that is extraordinary. When you put that across the whole organisation, that they're getting more than one idea a month from every single employee on average we across the organisation. We maybe need to um, reframe sort of ROI into return from ideas. Yeah. Return from investment. <laughs> but it's... Um, I just going to bring it back there. I mean, I find the whole thing fascinating. There's a couple of things. That this is in the public domain. People have known about Toyota and their process for a long time, yet other companies haven't embraced it. Why yeah. haven't they? I mean, when there's so much evidence out there, so much inspiration from whether it be sports people or business people and companies that have gone out and achieved these great things, why are companies still holding themselves back, particularly in this world where the need for creativity, the need for sort of change and innovation and reinvention is probably as, as more critical than it's ever been to ensure survival? There, I think that the stock market has a lot to answer for. I think that when you've got shareholders involved, you've got a responsibility to your shareholders. So that if you do something that is high risk that might affect the share price, that can be seen as being illegal because you've got a responsibility to your shareholders. That's a problem. So when Nike brought out this Colin Kaepernick ad, which is wonderful, I was reading online that there was their share price went down. It took it plummeted after that that people had been filming themselves burning their Nike gear, that people were... were I've probably got a few trainers that probably do need burn. <laughs> I'll admit that, but yeah. So they made a statement, and that statement has had an, an impact on the business. But do Nike regret it? Not one bit. No, as Professor Galloway said this week, it's an act of genius. It's, uh, you know, it's... Uh, probably the best of marketing sort of campaign of uh, the last sort of decade or for the century. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, even the, the, the media coverage they got from it that's positive is just so phenomenal. I think it's, a, it's an amazing sort of a but act if, of courage as well. But for something like that to have a negative impact on the company, but for them to still see it as a success, could you imagine if you're in a, a Fortune 500 company and you suggest something like that? There's absolutely no way that that will get through decision-making because it can have a potential kickback financially on the company like that. So, well, I think also um, Professor Galloway, he makes, a, or Scott Galloway makes the case that um, they've been very smart about looking at their audience, the people that will obviously react in a negative way to that use of Colin Kaepernick will be more likely to be the ageing more traditional mm-hmm. conservative um, sort of in, in American context obviously um, sort of buyer 
and they're probably not their future. They're looking at more younger, less conservative and uh, have a, a much more expansive view of the world. People who still put ideals before bank balance. Exactly. So I think that's uh, that's underlying it. There's probably a very sort of sound business business judgment and business logic that went into it. I'm sure they wouldn't have done it without discussing that at length. And let's see where their stock price goes once their sort of sales start picking up over the next couple of months. So I think there probably has been a short-term impact yeah. on the stock market. But yeah, let's see. Just in in terms of that that question of being fearless and being crazy, when you're dealing with clients, is it something you you encounter uh, that you, where you you help them craft how they deal with uh, fear of failure or being risk averse? Yeah, the the the. There's one of the things that when we, in the ad industry, you remember that people would always use words like brave. Um, you, you need to do something brave here. Yeah. We want a brave client. No client wants to be brave. That's a ridiculous thing to ask a client to want to be. And, and again, I think that fearless, we don't want them to be fearless either. We want them to understand their fear and to know how to deal with it. So it's the whole thing that being fearless uh, gets you killed. You know, it's actually having fear but doing it anyway is, is what keeps you alive. Um, so it's, it's not bad to feel fear. And I look at this, I've been running some workshops with, uh, with clients over the last couple of years, which is actually helping them understand the neuroscience of decision making. And we like to think that there's just one place where our thinking happens and it's in this meatball on the top of our head and actually we've got another brain it's our somatic nervous system which is our gut gut. and we've got the equivalent of more than one hamster brain in here yeah but what happens is when people feel fear this is the bit that reacts and people then are thinking with their hamster brain which is just fearful and and because they see something that's different this reacts because it goes, there's things I don't know about this. This is raising more questions. Um, I, don't, I can't be certain of the outcome. So it reacts, the, the gut reacts to that. Mm. Now, anything that's going to be a good idea or a good piece of innovation is unknown. It's going to raise questions. You won't know entirely how to, uh, to make it happen. Um, it may not work. And that's naturally going to happen when you're, when you're seeing something new. So what I tell people is not... Don't react to your gut. Stop reacting to your gut. You've got to interpret your gut. So understand how your gut is reacting and then apply rational thinking to go, right, what is our gut saying then? If I'm feeling fear, is it for the right reason? Do you find that some of the best ideas you've encountered when working in a... An agency, when you see them, you just have a gut feel that they're good. Mm-hmm. Even though you can't rationalize them, you can't, there's no way you can sort of justify it or um, explain something that's maybe never been done before mm-hmm. in a particular category, but you just got a gut sense that it's right. Yeah. And going back to that whole thing about the role of a good creative director is to be able to spot that thing that's not obvious. Yeah. So isn't that gut also sort of telling you at the same time? So you might be feeling the, the fear and the sense of, um, uh, of concern or f- fear for taking a risk, but at the same time, something inside you is telling you, I should do this. Yeah, now I, I think that's people who know how to interpret their gut. Mm-hmm. So I think being a, a creative director, when you see something that's unusual, that's actually what you're looking for. So you're looking for that little bit in your, your, your stomach that might mm-hmm. flip a little bit or something. You're looking for something that, that, that feels 
as if it's, it's something you've never seen before. So that I, I agree that, that there is that kind of gut that can be good, but these are people who know how to interpret their mm-hmm. gut. And the problem is that most people in business, they think the gut responds to patterns. It responds to unfamiliarity and people just go, no. And then the hierarchy of, again, yeah. of you were talking about the, the managing up the way and the, yeah. and the fear of what the next layer up is going to say yeah. kicks in. Yeah, so there's a, a bit of a problem there that needs to be addressed. I, I, it's, it's one thing that I'm now I'm, I'm feeling stronger and stronger that people need to understand judgment and they, and they need to understand uh, from a physiological point of view as well. And, and this is something I, I love showing people how to judge what a great idea is. And it very often comes from the very beginning when you go, what's the problem we want to solve? Right, how will we measure a good solution? So what are the criteria that mean that we've nailed it? And when you put those criteria at the beginning, then it gives you something to aim for. And then when it comes to when you've come up with ideas, it gives you something to judge them against. And also if, if your idea doesn't completely meet all of those criteria, then it means that you, you first of all go, can we adapt it to make it meet those criteria? And if you can't, you then go, it's possibly not the right idea then. So, so it gives you something to measure against and it gives you guidelines to adapt it to make it as strong as it can be. So the problem is when people don't have the criteria at the beginning, they then just rely on this vague gut at the end. So I show people how they need to actually start with the judgment framework in place so you, they know how to judge at the end. You've also talked, and I can't remember where I was one of the films I've seen you do online where you talk about um, how to avoid killing ideas. Yes. As well, I mean that's an important um, sort of facet of all this. Presumably, yeah. you must talk to your clients about that side of. I know it's probably more prevalent in creative, uh, creative agency, mm-hmm. um, as it's a day-to-day issue you're having to deal with. But it must affect businesses in the sort of the broader sense of creativity as well. Yeah, for for everything across the board, and I, yeah, I think a lot of it still is down to this judgment. <laughs> you know, people just not knowing how to do it. But it's it's easy, and I think in that that talk you saw, I was kind of. It was a slightly comedy talk about. Yeah, I think it was. Was it Shoreditch? Huh? Yeah, digital Shoreditch. Yeah, digital yeah. Shoreditch. Yeah. And and it was just pointing out all the stuff that people recognise, going, "Oh yeah, my company does yeah. this." <laughs> so that the people came up to me afterwards and gone, "Oh man, you've just explained to me why I hate my job." <laughs> but I, I I try to. So these days be a bit more positive and say actually how we can get around that, and and trust is one of the important things, and. Trust and care, you know, it's, it's really simple stuff and it sounds sort of a, a bit sort of Victorian uh, values, but they're so important. And if you think about the way that a relationship between an employee and their company starts, it starts with no trust whatsoever from the company. So the contract that you sign is basically saying, if you screw up, we're, you're, we're going to do this to you. If you do this, we'll sue you. If you, you know, everything is, is all about how we do not trust you. Your contract is basically there to protect the company. Mm-hmm. And there's no flip side to the contract to say, and if we screw up, you can do this. And, and so that shows that we've got this imbalance and that makes it very difficult for companies to get the trust of their employees, but the trust is vital if, if they, because the, the, the employee has to trust that the company 
isn't going to penalize them for taking a risk because all innovation and all new ideas have a level of risk to them. So one of the things I've been talking to companies about to get around this is the idea of seeing any budget that you're dealing with as an investment fund because finance guys get this. And if you were able to take, if you, if, if you were uh, fortunate enough to have uh, 100 American dollars to invest and you went to an investment advisor, they would say, take 80% of it and put it in to low risk, low return. It's stuff that's not gonna do that much for you, but you're probably not gonna lose it. And it will just, it'll be small incremental growth you're likely to get from that. Great, we'll take 20% of it and I'll put it into high risk, high return. It's the stuff that's unproven. You might risk, you might lose it, but also there's a possibility that it might go stratospheric. And that could be how you get your growth. And, and that's a sort of natural thing for investment people to do. So I, I talk to companies and say, right, take all your budgets. Look at your distribution budget. Is there something we can do here where we can take 80% of it, just do what you've always done? Low risk, low return. Just do what you've always done. I'll take 20% of it and we'll put it into stuff you've never tried before. And we're gonna try stuff. And some of it might work and some of it might fail. But what it means when we have got a pot of money, it makes it easier to get people to say yes to decisions that feel as if they've got a level of risk to them. Because the money is there, it's much easier to get to it. But also, along with that, we put in a learning mechanism that's part of this innovation so that if, if it works or if it doesn't work, we're going to analyze it and we're gonna work out why and we're gonna work out what could we have done differently. We're gonna work out what we would do next time. We're gonna work out what people maybe didn't have the right skills. Do we need to add skills to this? And, and here's a series of questions and discussion points we'll have and we will make sure that whether it, whether it wins or whether it loses, which is another conversation, yeah. <laughs> success, failure, win, lose. Um, that we're going to learn from it and we're going to be stronger at the end of it. So when you build all that into an organisation, that helps the organisation keep moving forward. And to take those innovative, well, let's call them risks because because they tend to be, mm -hmm. um, take those risks that could pay off really highly for them. I'm in the middle of um, listening to Ray Dalio, his book on principles. And there's one phrase that struck me, which where he says, dreams plus embracing reality plus determination equals a successful life. And it's something sort of I thought a fair bit about. I mean, we talked obviously about the importance of dreams in relation to what Nike's recent ad. But having those sort of dreams, almost these big sort of crazy, audacious goals and ambitions, plus the um, need to embrace a certain reality of where you are today, but then having the determination, the willpower, preparedness and the determination and the, the desire to take action and do stuff. And that's what leads to a successful life. And that what you're talking about, uh, sort of, I feel touches on that, is the having the, that financial element in there that unlocks that sort of reality. It's uh, mm. You've got the embracing a reality of here's a budget that's there to facilitate you. Mm. Take your dreams, take your goals, and then apply them with determination. I think that is an interesting thing. I mean, I know that obviously that companies like Google and others and uh, always had their sort of 20% rule, but it, it's certainly interesting. It's, it's, there's a sort of similar thing from that that I've just realized as you're saying there that I've been talking about is thinkers and doers and dreamers. It's kind of like different roles you can have. So, a lot of business is based on doing. 
so people sit down at their desk and what's in front of them, they've got a computer keyboard and a monitor and they've got the mouse and they've got a desk tidy with a gonk on it saying I gave blood and they've got so like little stickers they took off their apple and stuck around the monitor and, and the whole thing, all of that uh, paraphernalia, all of that furniture says that your job is to do, that your job, the way that you show your value is to hit those keys. Now, computers are not places for thinking. Computers are places for doing when you're sitting by a computer. I don't do any thinking by my computer, really. I go away, I leave my computer to think. And that means that most people are in a doing state. They're not actually thinking. They're not questioning. They're not applying their own intelligence and, uh, and experience to the matter at hand. They're just doing. And there's the one thing that is really important is that people think and that they dream. Mm-hmm. and that they're, they're given the freedom to do that. And any company that really wants to get ideas out of its staff has to understand that you need to enable people to do the thinking and the dreaming because putting them at a desk and expecting them to sit at their desk puts them in a doing mode. And, and that doesn't lead to great ideas. No, it goes back to what we were talking about over coffee yesterday. Um, Darwin having his thinking path. Mm. Um, and whoever you speak to that's uh, in a creative role or has achieved great things, normally talk about when the ideas come to them yeah. or not when they're in that sort of that doing state. They're either in that alpha thetus of a relaxed state, waking up in the morning, yeah. going to sleep at night, daydreaming, um, out cycling, running, wherever you are, and to get into that state where the ideas mm. come to you. So I think it's uh, you're just reinforcing the fact that that's uh, is something that organizationally businesses maybe need to sort of think about mm. today whether you're a small business yeah. or a large organization it's not something that's being embraced and talked about at yeah. an at a, at a institutional level so for you where do the ideas come to you for me it's always been i'd say usually waking up in the morning it's mm. that early state and you're coming out of the, the sort of the deeper sleep and you're mm. in and out of consciousness and that's when ideas come and also when i'm running yeah as well, where I can be free and not haven't got headphones on, just running, spotting things. I think you yeah. mentioned this yesterday: is having your head up yeah. and looking around and seeing things. Mm. It's where connections, it's the synapses going, and mm. the sort of the neurotransmitters are firing. I, I think it's. I think there can be the visual, and there can be the oral, and there can be the moment when you're in the sort of the deep, the, the deep sleep, and ideas sort of come to you. Yeah. And also reading as yeah. well, reading something unexpected, and mm. something picking up a magazine in a sort of whether it be in a waiting room or wherever you just happen mm. to be, and pick up a book that you moon so we'd never otherwise see and something jumps jumps out at you it's one of those coming back to the whole thing we've um, touched really on the simple serendipity mm. yeah it's, it's that that connection where does it come from the unexpected that you cannot legislate for it's you cannot plan for mm. um, and it's i think that's something that you're what you're talking about and the way i interpret that when you're talking to clients is that you're trying to facilitate an environment where such connections or serendipity can actually sort of exist and yeah. ideas can sort of flow. And there's a lot of neuroscience understandings that we're getting about the way the brain works as well, how we come up with ideas. There's, you sort of mentioned waking up in the morning being a great place for ideas, maybe having a shower, um, sitting on an airplane, all that, all that kind of stuff. And they discovered about 10 to 15 years ago that there is a part of the brain that activates just before you get a moment of insight. And it's about the size of your thumb and it's above your right ear and it's called the anterior superior temporal gyrus. And this thing, they found that there was increased blood flow to this area just before people got that moment of insight. 
but when they were trying to solve an insight puzzle. And that, that's considered to be that moment where two things come together and click. Um, and this only switches on when you're in alpha state. It's the only time the anterior superior temporal gyrus switches on. You're in alpha state. And most people in an office environment rarely get to alpha state. Well, because when we're wired on coffee and yeah. <laughs> whatever else. But we're, it's, it's a stressful environment. I mean, the office is the modern prairie. It's, it's leading to all sorts of disorders that people are having because of this high-stress environment. And giving people the opportunity to take their foot off the gas to go into, into an alpha state is how you start to get this thinking happening. And also to allow people to defocus their mind because there's another thing we discovered in the early 2000s is that the brain has got lots of areas um, that have got different function in it and people have been looking for this area that creativity, what's the brain area that creativity is about? And it's not about an area. The, the brain goes into different network modes and the guy who invented EEG in the early 1900s discovered that when people were focusing on a problem, there was a certain amount of energy that was being used in their brain. And then when they weren't focusing on the problem, it was still using the same amount of energy. And he was like, what's this about? And he wrote a paper about it and he was ignored. And then in the 1960s, more studies came out and people looked at the calorific uh, rate that the brain was burning uh, calories. And they discovered that it burned exactly the same amount of calories when you were focusing on a task as when you were defocused. And it's like, why is that? And again, it was ignored. And it was only in the early 2000s they sort of looked at this and realized there's the, uh, what we call the default mode network. And that's when we start to lean back and we go into a daydreamy mode. And it might be that we start replaying those, uh, those conversations we've had. So, you know, when, when I'll be in the subway on the way back from here, I'll be going, damn it, wish I'd thought of that. And, and I'll be in default mode network when, I, well, when that, those thoughts come to me because this is when we start thinking of what-if scenarios. This is when we can look into the future and, and extrapolate a theory or a thought into the future and think, what would happen if we did that? What would the outcome be? And it's a really important brain state. But everything that we're about in business for the last few years has been about focus, not about defocus. Defocus is when we get the ideas. Focus is when we're productive. And everything's about productivity and about getting people to this. I, was, I just did a meeting earlier on today. They were talking about people were getting 120 to 140% utilization rate. What? That is ridiculous. So people need to be less utilised so that they can come up with ideas because it's not just about the doing. We need to do the thinking and the dreaming as well. So that's... I, I probably just went off on a rant there. I apologise. No. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk a bit about your particular journey. Daniel Ek, uh, you mentioned Spotify earlier. I mean, he's, he's said in sort of interviews that his mother gave him the security to do mm. what he actually wanted to do, that he felt that nothing was impossible and that you just need to go out there and do it. Um, again, there's a lot of just do it in, t- in today's chat. What about your individual upbringing? I mean, like myself, you're Scottish, and how did that affect you as your family, the school you went to, the environment you lived in that led you to being a creative and having this way of thinking? You know, I remember as a kid that my mother had grown up two streets away from John Logie Baird. And I those remember, are, for those that don't know who John Logie Baird is, John Logie Baird invented the television. Good old and, Scottish inventor. Yeah. <laughs> and 
he, um, I, I remember going to his house and they turned it into a museum and it was a terrible museum, it really was. But I, I went there and I remember when I started saying to my parents about this is amazing, television was invented in Scotland. And I remember uh, my parents saying, lots of things were invented in Scotland. And they started to name all these, all these things. Now, they, I, I know more about these things than they do now, but um, logarithms were invented in Scotland. The adhesive for the back of postage stamps. Penicillin was invented by a Scotsman. Uh, tarmac, uh, the steam engine. I mean, so many things were invented by Scots. We invented the world in a period of history. And I became, I guess, quite proud about that, that... Uh, the, my countrymen had, because it all seemed to be men at the time, in the 1800s, my countrymen had invented the world and done so many things that had had such a huge impact. And I wanted a piece of that. And as a kid, I remember that being, what I wanted to do is I wanted to make a little dent in the universe in the it's way that some of these guys have. So it, it created the sort of a, your belief system yeah. and a confidence that you were part of a culture that you could actually sort of go out there and achieve yeah. something quite astounding. But I guess as a kid, I fell for the, the myth that being able to come up with stuff like that, amazing stuff, involved amazing intelligence. And it doesn't. I'm averagely intelligent. You know, I don't poke myself in the eye with a fork too often when I'm eating. But I just get really excited about, about, my, uh, about my countrymen and really wanted to create stuff. And I, I started in my early 20s. Uh, I would come up with ideas and, and always coming up with little inventions and things. In my early 20s, I invented a tent peg, which I still think is awesome, that um, I got it patented all over the world. And then I realized that I didn't want my life to be manufacturing tent pegs. <laughs> so I ended up letting it drift and, and it didn't happen. And for many years, it's, I became... It's not, a, it's not the best thing to say when you're in a sort of a bar looking to uh, meet someone. <laughs> what are you yeah. doing? Yeah, working advertising. I'm a tent peg innovator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, no, it wouldn't have worked. Um, and for a long time, I was a guy who was coming up with ideas and then not seeing them through. And it probably wasn't until my early to mid-30s that I actually started to see things through by, by doing small projects that I could see through rather than these big things that I'd been trying to do. And then when I got the, the reward of being a completer, then I could start doing bigger things. Hmm. And you start to get into this cycle of you, you put in the hard work to do something and then you get as a little reward you get that in the endorphins you know you, you get that little boost of yes and that sees you through the next piece of hard work to, to complete something to reach a goal then you get an even bigger burst of endorphins and we get this cycle and a lot of people they don't start on stuff because they feel they're not motivated to start on stuff and it's actually it's not the way you, it works the motivation comes after you've started you have to get started and complete something. Mm -hmm. And then that gives you the motivation to keep going. But it's, it's the reason why most people don't get started, because they don't understand that, uh, that cycle. Hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, it's, a, it's also something, I think, I mean, you were um, involved in the ad industry and in the digital and technology side, which on that digital side in the early 2000s was very much about sort of doing stuff and mm -hmm. making stuff. So it's obviously in your character to do that. But yeah. Today, where technology 
um, infuses and infects everything. I mean, it's in um, it's probably the role of everyone in in business to mm. embrace that sort of that philosophy more and just say, just get out and do it. Yeah, make something. Um, it, fail. <laughs> it, again, for for most right. people in in companies, the, there's so much fear within the layers of the companies that they don't want to do that because they feel that they will put their job at risk. And I think that the culture of a company trickles down from the top. Mm-hmm. And we've ended up with this, it almost starts at school, where there's the headmaster, then there's the teachers, then there's the, uh, the prefects, and then there's the rest of the pupils. You, it starts with this hierarchical system and we go into the workplace and it carries on like that, where there's the fear of the person at the top. And that is a, most workplaces are, are set up in that very destructive, mm-hmm. poisonous way. And a lot of people who are senior, they don't, they think that their job is to lord it over other people, and they don't realise that their job is actually to be underneath them, supporting them, clearing away all the crap so that these people can be as excellent as they can be. And, and we need to, our organisations need to be turned upside down so that the person at the very top of the organisation is actually the person with the responsibility to clear away everything for everyone else. And their attitude for caring for other people trickles down the organisation and we, we managed to dissolve the fear. But it's the only way to dissolve the fear. It strikes me from just hearing you talk and, and having watched your videos and sort of known you for some time now, you do seem to be on a mission to be to create value, to help people, yeah. to help businesses um, navigate these difficult times. I mean, what keeps you going? What keeps you driven to do this? Um, I, I really want to make a change in the world. And there, there's... To me, I'm, I'm enjoying the journey rather than having necessarily a, a destination. I think too many people focus on the destination. I actually think that a, a lot of the, the hokey psychology stuff of if you've got to have a goal mm-hmm. and go for that goal, actually is quite disappointing for most people. And most people put, make the goal too big and then they never achieve it and they just end up being disappointed. I enjoy the journey. And I don't know where it's taking me, but there's certainly I've got things that I'm interested in doing. Um, I want to, I want to change businesses at the moment, um, but I also I'm interested in a governmental level. I'm, I'd love to change a nation, <laughs> and I've been talking to some governments recently. So, uh, actually going and speaking with governments, which is great. We um, probably I'm, got a few um, sort of willing, um, sort of open uh, doors in in this country. Oh, I'd love to hear your point of view. I would love to. <laughs> I, I wish the government... Uh, but maybe we need to focus on Britain first to get that sorted. <laughs> I was hoping... I'm, I wish that government yeah. in Britain was more welcoming yeah. um, and, and more willing to make changes mm-hmm. because one of the areas we need to look at is, uh, is schools and education. Mm-hmm. And in the UK, they have been gradually defunding the creative subjects at school. So there's less money going into music and to art and to drama and all these things. But the problem is the people who are criticising this are not understanding what creativity is because those things in themselves aren't creativity. We have to split creativity into creative thinking and creative doing so that if you want to be a great creative doer, it's going to take that mythical Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours Mm -hmm. to be really good at something um, so that it becomes an innate and you become an expert and a master at it. But creative thinking is something we can all do, and it's fed by curiosity, and it's something that needs to be across all subjects in school. 
so that we actually use curiosity and discovery and all of the, the toolkit of the creative thinker um, in all of our subjects. And it's something I've been looking at how to do that over the last few years. Something I would like to do, but at the moment I'm not probably quite ready to do that. I'm looking at business just now, mm-hmm. but my my dream is to change the world and to change people's lives in some way. If I can make people's lives happier, if I can make them feel more fulfilled, if I can push humanity forward through good innovation and good ideas, um, then I feel I've, I've done my thing. Uh, and, and whether I do that through writing books or doing TV stuff or speaking or consulting with companies or working with governments, then, you know, I'm, I, all of these are just ways of me doing what I want to do. Well, I think it's a great way to wrap up. I certainly think, um, Dave, that there's, um, there, is count, there are countless businesses out there um, that will be knocking on your door. So... I hope so. I mean, I think it would be good if you could maybe share how do people get in touch with you. Um, I've, I've got a, my surname is weird. If you haven't looked at the the title of this podcast yet, have a look. Um, B i r s s. It's a strange name, Burse. Um, there's apparently there's only four Dave Burses in the world, and we all got uh, in touch with each other a few years ago. <laughs> um, <A> yearly meetup. <laughs> they're all over the world: Canada, Australia, um, another one in the UK, and me. But DaveBurse.com, all one word, mm. is the best way to get hold of me. I also hide under that uh, that pseudonym of Dave Burse as well uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, um, and I'm. I love to have conversations with people, so yes, please. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Dave, I think it's a fascinating journey you've been on. I've used this quote before, and I got it from this, I think, came in uh, Tim Ferriss' podcast, which is a Jersey Gregory. It says, hard choices, easy life, easy life, easy life. Sorry, let's start again. Mm-hmm. Um, hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. I think you, from discussing your journey, you've made some very hard choices. <laughs> and so I, I really hope that in the future, your life is going to become um, a, a lot easier by companies sort of knocking on your door invite you to come in and help them with their transformations inject more creativity into them to instill sort of um, sort of belief uh, risk-taking attitude to be more fearless um, amongst their sort of the organizations because I think you've got the certainly the tools the techniques and the experience to help them so um, I wish you the best of luck thank you very much and if anyone wants to get in touch with you the best place to do it well uh, probably my website which is DaveBurse.com. Um, you should probably have a look at the title of this podcast because my surname is spelled a bit strange. And if you if you misspell it and, and you Google me, you might get not safe for work images of um, circumcisions um, because <laughs> uh, it's a Jewish term for circumcision is, is if you misspell my name. So, so Burse is B-I-R-S-S. So DaveBurse.com. I'm also on Twitter as Dave Burse and Instagram as well. But um, yeah, my my door is there waiting to be knocked. I'd love to hear from you. Sounds good. Well, thanks very much. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people discover us. Just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to subscribe and rate. For now, stay curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.